Hey there, Marcus here. It is my joy and privilege to serve as pastor here at Awaken Church in Juneau, Alaska. I pray that in the next few moments, the, the word of God proclaimed is a blessing to you and is nourishing to your soul. But we believe here at Awaken that one of the ordinary means of God's grace in our life is the gathering of the people of God. We believe that it's in the gathering that, that we're known and that we know one another. That it's in the gathering that, that we are shaped and fashioned into the image of Jesus Christ. And so I want to invite you this Sunday to come and join us. Come and worship with us. But for now, I pray that you're encouraged by this sermon. God bless. Let's read the word of the Lord together. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 1. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, he, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, it is our tendency to shy away from uh, passages of scripture that make us uncomfortable because they go against um, the culture of the day. They seem to be politically incorrect and outdated according to our era in which we live, but your word uh, remains. It does not uh, become void. It doesn't return to you void. It doesn't lose power. It doesn't lose it's truth, it doesn't lose its, its helpfulness, its validity. And so I, I pray this morning that we would humbly and, and graciously uh, long to simply know what you teach on this subject, what your word says on this subject. And Lord, I recognize this morning that uh, many of us in this room um, come from uh, backgrounds with divorce in them, either with uh, divorce in, in our in some marriages or as the children of divorced parents. And so this is a, a touchy subject for us. And so we ask that you would just graciously um, lead us into all truth. We, we know that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. And so we, we pray that we would profit from it this morning. We ask in your name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Well, this, uh, this morning's 
message is really going to serve as a very, very long introduction to next week's uh, message because the, the topic of marriage and divorce is a, a very, very touchy subject. It's something that is, uh, that is a hot button issue uh, today. It has been for a long, long time. And, and the reality is it, it always has been an issue within, within society and, and within even the people of God. And, and so I just want to say on the outset this morning that uh, despite your background or despite uh, your personal experience with the subject of marriage and divorce, I just want to remind you that God's word is good and it is for our good. Uh, it's not meant to uh, um, be anything other than that. And so if you make it anything other than that, that's your own sin, not God's desire for you. And so uh, his desire is for, for you to be filled with joy and filled with life. And, and here's, here's news, God designed the, the constructs and the means by which uh, human beings are to flourish to the fullest extent, right? Now, we know that in this life and in this world, that is always going to be diminished and corrupted and broken by sin. It will be perfected. Uh, our joy will be perfected in heaven. But we, we are... Um, we are intended to experience uh, life as he has designed it uh, as Christians today. And so I, I hope that you are encouraged this morning, even if you are challenged uh, by God's word. And the other thing I want to say is I, I recognize as I look around the room this morning that not everyone in the room is married. And uh, the reality is that this subject is also uh, pertinent to you as well because uh, the, the God's design for marriage and the construct of the, of the family unit uh, is really at the, the heart of, uh, of the fabric of really any culture or society, right? And, and it's also at the, the center of how we live our lives together. And so it has tremendous relevance and, um, and is helpful to, to all of us. So I'll, please don't, don't tune out and then start planning what you're going to do next Sunday instead of coming to church, but, but lean in because we want to know what God's word um, says. So have, have I guilted you enough? Are you, you with me? Okay. So we've just read together uh, Jesus' masterful response to an issue that was a culturally hot topic of his day as well. It was just, a much, uh, just as much an issue 2,000 years ago in Judea as it is an issue in our culture and in uh, the church today. As the Pharisees approach Jesus in our text this morning and they ask him this straightforward question of whether or not a, a, a man is permitted to divorce his wife, they knew, they were well aware that in the midst of the crowd to which Jesus was speaking that there was a whole myriad of opinions on the subject that not everyone was of the same mind. They, they were divided on what divorce is, what, what is permissible, what is a good reason for divorce, or, or whether or not you should get divorced at all, ever. They knew that it was going to cut right to the heart of, of people's everyday lives and experiences, just as it is a touchy experience and issue for our hearts today. Uh, the reality is, is that it, it, it's no different. The opinions and feelings towards this subject are, are really 
virtually the same right now in this room as they were in that crowd to which Jesus was speaking 2,000 years ago. The only difference, culturally speaking, perhaps, is that in our day, uh, there is an ever-increasing frequency for a wife to abandon her husband and her children that is far more prevalent now than in their day. It would have been predominantly just a husband abandoning his wife and children because she burnt the toast or something ridiculous like that and moved on to someone else. There was a mixture of people within the crowd. There were those who were militant uh, about the, the topic of divorce that would insist that there is no grounds whatsoever at any time, in any case, for a man to leave his wife. And they would uh, uh, no doubt shun and put out anyone who had even thought about the subject of divorce, let alone had divorced their spouse. They would have considered it, as the word of God read, adultery. And there were also those in the midst of the same crowd that thought and believed according to God's word, their interpretation of the law of Moses was that a man could for virtually any reason leave his wife so long as he issued her a certificate of divorce. Those are polarizing opposites, aren't they? And we have the same kind of culture today. There, there are, are those that are, are militant in their opposition to divorce. And can I uh, just be frank with you this morning? Those are typically the people who have been divorced, uh, who, who then become so militant in, in their, um, their arguments for not getting a divorce in, in an attempt to sort of reconcile and feel better about the decisions that they've made in the past. In other words, to kind of make up for what they've done by, um, by owning, owning up to it in a sense, but also um, being militant, I think, is the best word for it in, in their approach to the subject. And then there are, are those that, that treat it today with that, a sort of cavalier av- attitude, right? They say, oh, yeah, you know, I just, I fell out of love. Or they just don't satisfy me anymore. They just don't make me happy anymore. I'm just, I'm bored. I'm depressed. We just, we want different things. We just, we grew apart. All, all these sort of trivial, ridiculous uh, things that, that, that really have um, everything to do with just simply our, our own sin and our own selfishness. And so there's these two categories of people within the crowd. The removal of the concept and the construct of marriage within society has been detrimental, hasn't it? It, it has had systemic effects within our society. It's, it should be obvious to any of us who, who look around, and that's why I say this is a subject that all of us should have uh, uh, an understanding about, because if you look at culture in general, and honestly, if you look around even the culture of the church, we, we recognize that this, this divorce and this breaking down of the construct of marriage and the construct of the family has had detrimental effects, detrimental effects. If you are the child of divorced parents, if, you, if you're a, a son of a divorced father and mother, you know personally 
the effect that it has had on you as a, as a man to be able to know what it is to be a, a, a godly father and a, a godly husband. The, the insecurities and the, the difficulties of trying to kind of find your way in life and learn what it be, means to be a responsible um, young man it is challenged because the, the family construct has been broken. We know that young women who grow up in, in homes without uh, the influence of a father um, have tremendous difficulty oftentimes with their, their own identities, their own securities within themselves. And, it, and it's, it's a challenge uh, to, to know what God um, says about them as, as young women. That's why so much of the Christian material out there Towards, uh, geared towards women says the same thing over and over again. You're a child of God. You're a child of God. You're a child of God. Hey, can I, I just say to you ladies this morning, you are a child of God, but you, you are much more than that. He, he, is, he is your God. And if you want to know who you are, you need to behold him as your God, just as men do. But it has had a, a serious impact on on all of us and on all of society. But the real issue, I believe, is not a lax attitude towards divorce. And I'm speaking now specifically to us within the church, within the people of God. I believe that the real issue that faces us is a lack of understanding of the purpose of marriage. We do not understand what it means to be married, what the purpose of marriage is. And because of that lack of understanding, there is a, a it's much easier for us to, to disintegrate that union when things begin to become challenging. And so that's why I said today is a, a, an extended introduction because I'd like for us to turn next week together uh, to Ephesians chapter 5 and, and look at uh, what marriage is to be a picture of. And so we're going to look at that um, next week together. Jesus had already stated his position on marriage and divorce earlier on in his ministry. You can find that in uh, the gospel according to Matthew, I believe it's Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said that God prohibits marriage except for the grounds of, of adultery. And no doubt that the Pharisees would have known Jesus' position on that. And, and their desire now is to seek him out and to publicly question his position in an attempt to discredit him for him to lose popularity with the crowd and at best to have him killed perhaps because of his position on the subject. In the 10th chapter of Mark, we find our Lord moving to a region beyond Galilee and he's going now into a region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And as he goes into this new region, the region of Perea, 
he begins again a sort of public ministry. He had, uh, just to catch you up, I know it's been a few weeks since we've been in Mark, but, but Jesus had, had pulled away from his Galilean ministry and he had pulled away for, for quite a while to be simply just with his disciples and to instruct them and to teach them. And he has now left Capernaum and they have gone into this region. And as soon as he arrives, we see in, in verse one that again, notice that word again, again, the crowds gathered and again, as was his custom, he taught them. I think it's wonderful to remember that the Lord, he did see it fitting as one commentator wrote to teach them again and again and again, and it's good for us to remember as we look at this subject or any subject within the scriptures that we need to be reminded again and again and again of the truthfulness uh, of God's word. That as we think, even though we think and, and may very well know God's opinion on a particular topic, it is good for us all to be reminded over and over again. Amen? So he came and he was teaching them again, teaching them again. And as the crowds began to gather around, the Pharisees decide that they're going to use this yet again. I think that that word again is, is um, a, a helpful descriptor of what, what is happening here. It's everything on repeat, right? Jesus is, uh, a public, is public again now in his ministry. The Pharisees are there again challenging him and attempting to discredit him. And I think it's helpful for us to understand that they have absolutely no desire to know the truth about God's word. Their hearts have been hardened long ago. They could care less about Jesus um, articulating for them as he could do masterfully as no one else could teach the truth of God's word on this subject. They could care less about it. They had one mission and one desire and, and that was to get rid of Jesus. They were jealous of his popularity. They were threatened by his influence over the crowd of people, they were seeking his life now. They were planning um, his execution and looking for ways for that to take place. And so here was another opportunity. They knew the crowd was divided. And so they knew that no matter what Jesus said, at least half the crowd is going to hate him for it. It didn't matter what he said, if he, if he took a conservative position or if he took a liberal position, somebody is going to walk away angry. And so they thought, well, maybe we can't get everybody to hate him, but we can get some people to hate him right now by asking one question in the midst of this particular crowd in this particular region. Another thing to consider briefly, and we won't spend much time time on it together, but he, he is also in a, in a region now teaching that was ruled by Herod, Herodias Antipas, Herod the Great's son. And you remember, we've, we've looked at his train wreck of a life back in, uh, I think it was Mark chapter six. He was the one that, that John the Baptist uh, called out and said, you should not take your brother's wife. What are, what are you doing? And because of that, he was imprisoned and then um, that 
that uh, stance uh, led to him losing his head. You remember when we looked at all that? John was executed. John the Baptist was executed because of his position, excuse me, position against the, the king on the subject of divorce. And so I wonder if in the back of their minds they're thinking, hey, if word gets back to the king that uh, Jesus is as opposed to divorce as John the Baptist is, I wonder if he might suffer the same fate. But, but either way, their goal is to get rid of Jesus. And this was exactly the, the question that might do the trick. The, the Pharisees were master manipulators. They, they had risen to a, a place of prominence and power be, because they, they knew the system better than anybody else. They, they knew how to align themselves with the right people and get into the right position. And in their position of leadership within the culture, they, they had mastered the art of manipulating society and twisting the word of God so that they themselves would, would gain from it personally. They were master manipulators, rest as politicians. He can say that. I'm not going to say that this morning. So they knew exactly what they were doing. They knew exactly what they were asking, when it, they were asking it, and who was there at the moment. The two predominant views within the midst of the Jewish people came not from the word of God so much as from the opinion of popular teachers. Just like much of our perspectives as, as Christians within Christian, Christendom, as it were, much of our views on things doesn't come from the scriptures but comes from books that people have written on their perspective with a little bit of scripture sprinkled in, right? We, we see that within uh, the culture of Christianity, and the same was true back then. What, what they believed on, uh, on the subject of divorce really had nothing to do with the law of Moses and everything to do with the, the teaching of, of two, um, two rabbis. One liberal in his view, one conservative in his view. From the school of Shammai, it says that a, a man may not divorce his wife unless he has found unchastity in her, for it is written, because he hath found in her indecency. That, that was the, obviously the conservative approach. A, a man shall not, may not divorce his wife unless there is this infidelity, this unchastity found in her. But then there was the school of, he, I'm sorry, I always pronounce it incorrectly, Hillel, Hillel, and he said that a man may divorce her even if she has spoiled a dish for him, for it is written, because he hath found in, in her indecency in anything. So his approach was, look, if she's not satisfying you, if you find her indecent for anything because she burnt the toast, and you think, you know, so-and-so down at the market, she don't look like she would burn the toast. And she's 10 years younger than you. I think I'm going to head on down and, and trade you in for someone that knows how to make me a, a good dinner. That, that it sounds absurd, right? You can chuckle at that because it, it's absurd. But it, it was the liberal view of divorce. And honestly, it's no different than how our culture views it today. 
uh, I'm just not happy. I, I don't know. I just, they, they, they don't fulfill me. They don't serve me. I think I might be happy somewhere else. These, these were the two predominant views. The only um, thing that everyone agreed on was that there were parameters of some kind around divorce. No one believed that there, were ne there was never any grounds for divorce, which I think is an important thing to understand. Each view believed that there were grounds, but the question was one of, is it open to virtually anything, or is that um, restricted to, to a, a very small set of circumstances? They have no desire to know the truth, but, but rather to cause one of these schools of thought to hate Jesus, to hate Jesus. So Jesus responds masterfully. They ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, this is a, a, important to, to see the way that they're phrasing the question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? The question is not elaborated on, right? We would think that they would say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his life, wife for any reason? Or is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife only in a certain case? But rather they leave it open and simply say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Why? Well, because as what is flowing through your minds right now, there was all kinds of information and previous conversations and previous experiences and previous perspectives that had shaped frames of thought that were that were so much more uh, than just one simple question, right? There, there's so much more information behind the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? It's kind of like when we ask uh, the question, what does, well, actually, never mind. I, I don't have time. I'm gonna keep going. You're welcome. You have to come back next week. <laughs> Jesus responds to this question masterfully, as he always did. And he says to them, what did Moses command you? What did Moses say? You want my perspective? What does God's word say about this subject. Church, I, I got to remind you, I'm going to start preaching now and get away from my notes a little bit, but I, I got I to gotta tell you this morning, as I've said many times before, our lives would be so simplified if we would more frequently simply say, what does God's word say? Not what do I feel about it, not how are people going to perceive it, but what does God's word say about it? Because when it comes down to it, that, that's all that matters. 
I, I am a terrible counselor. I just want to let you know if you come to see me because I, I, I take this perspective. What does God's word say about it? I love the way that Stephen Lawson said it. He's a, um, an incredible uh, preacher, a faithful pastor for j- decades and decades. He, he said, I, I asked three questions. What, what does God's word say? What are you, um, what does it mean? And what's the problem, right? Because once we know what God's word says about any given subject, what, what comes next is just simply whether we're going to joyfully and gladly seek to be obedient to it or if we're going to try to figure out a way to, to wiggle around it, right? And there's so many areas of our lives, not, not just this subject of divorce, but so many areas of our life, that, that we spend so much time trying to wiggle around the truth of God's word to coddle areas of sin in our life and we feel the frustration, we feel the separation from God and, and from his, his uh, benevolent presence and, and we wonder what the issue is. And all the time we're, we're avoiding simply saying, what does God's word say about this subject? What does God's word say about it? And Jesus always took that approach. What does the word of God say? What does scripture say? He knew they were trying to trap him. He knew their intentions. And so he points them nowhere else but to the authority of scripture itself. The authority of scripture itself. I, I think... I should probably take a moment and, and just um, continue to apply this uh, to us this morning. You know, there, there are so many resources out there for Christians to improve their marriage. There's marriage seminars, marriage classes, marriage books with all kinds of pop psychology in order for you to in, improve your, your relationship with your, with your spouse. How many of you remember having a love tank on your refrigerator. Anybody remember that? Your, whether your love tank is full or how about the five love languages? Everybody remember that? Everybody, you probably know your one or two five love languages or some of you are like, I have all five. <laughs> how many people have actually really ever been truly helped by that? There is so much extra biblical material out there on the subject of marriage. I, I just think we would be so helped as a church if we just simply said, what does God's word say about this issue? And if we just simply humbled ourselves before the word of God and said, what does it say? What does it say? Not just about divorce, but what does it say about us? What does it say about our, our, our brokenness, our sin, our, our tendency towards selfishness? What does it say about the fact that in the fall that there would be strife between a husband and a wife and there would be this constant tension? And, and what does it all, what's going on here? According to scripture, not according to the latest marriage seminar. Now, there are ones that are helpful because they point you to the scriptures, but by and large, it's just a bunch of garbage. And again, not just on this subject, but on so many subjects. I've seen um, a lot of people and family members even that, that are um, consumed by that kind of stuff. And, and they remind me 
of a, of a person who has, who's at a, um, a fasting facility and is doing like a 60-day juice fast and they're malnourished and have to have their blood pressure taken eight times a day so they don't pass out stand, standing up. I've saw, seen some interviews with these sorts of people and they all say, I feel great, I feel great. And there are so many Christian marriages out there that are saying, we're doing great. We're praying together every night and our love tanks are full and we're trying to seek our love language. We're doing good, we're doing much better. But the reality is deep down, things are just as broken as they've ever been. And I think so many of us would be so helped and I don't intend at all to make light of it. We'd be so helped to simply say, what does God's word say about this? So Jesus, I asked them this very question and they say, well, Moses said that a man, that, that Moses allowed a man to write a certificate, certificate of divorce and send her away. So I want you to notice this morning that they could not say, yeah, Moses or God's law permitted divorce. That's not what it says. It, it doesn't say, yes, in God's law, there, there are all kinds of areas in, in which divorce is permissible and divorce glorifies God. Where divorce fits into the will of God. All they could say was, Moses commanded that if a husband and wife happen to get divorced, that the man must write a certificate of divorce to her. Let's look at that together. Deuteronomy 24, it's one through four. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. Now notice it doesn't say adultery. The law of Moses, uh, talked about adultery in a different area. The, the punishment for adultery was execution. So that's, that's pretty straightforward, right? So this is not talking about adultery. Adultery is not in here. Adultery was elsewhere, but rather an, an indecency in her. Remember, in this giving, second giving of the law of God, the intention was to purify the people of God for the promised land. But he, what he must do is, is write her a certificate of divorce and put it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce, this woman has had a rough life, right? Or the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that is, the, the land of the Lord your God, that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So you notice what, what the issue is, is not, giving permission for divorce, but it's really a warning. It's a warning of you better watch out because what you're about to do is defile God's good design in marriage and family and human flourishing. The the warning is to husbands. It's It's a judgment on husbands who divorce their wives because of any sort of small, ridiculous reason, finding some indecency in her. 
And I want you to, to notice, particularly ladies, to, to notice that what is written in the law of God is a protection for the women that are forced out of their homes by their husbands. What had to be put down on the certificate of divorce is the reason for the divorce. So if a husband was going to divorce his wife, he had to put down, she does not cook very well. Not she, you know, performs some sort of indecency or some sort of act, but, but she, she doesn't make me happy. She annoys me. I don't like the tone of her voice. Whatever it may be, he had to put it on the certificate to protect her, to protect her purity so that she could be remarried again and, and be protected and, and bear children as, as was the society of the day. And so the progression was this, this series of events that Moses is laying out and saying, you, you better watch out because what you're about to do is defile God's construct for marriage. And once you, once you go this direction, there's, there's no coming back. There's no coming back. Once you give away the wife of your youth and she goes off and marries someone else, there, there is no saying, boy, I really messed up. It's been broken. It's been defiled. And so that's, that's the real issue. And so we get back to our text in, in uh, Mark 10 and, and the Pharisees could only concede that. Well, what, what Moses said is that if this inevitably happens, which inevitably does happen because people are broken, people are sinful, the husband must issue this certificate of divorce. And that's all they could say. So Jesus responds and says, Moses allowed but because it was because of your hardness of heart, look at verse five, Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. So it's not because of this glorifies God or because this works within God's construct for society, but because of your sin, because you were going to act wickedly towards one another, Moses wrote you this command the father in me that's my daughter distracting me and keeping me up at night and all the other things that come along with being a parent of a one-year-old glory be to god um i've lost my place because of your hardness of heart he wrote this command to you. But from the beginning, here's where we're gonna end. Like I said, this is a long introduction. And if, if you're like, get to the point, I'm, we're bored, get to the point. That, that was kind of my intention this morning. We'll get to the point next week. I'm sorry for that, but it's just, we, we gotta go through it all. Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this command. But from the beginning of creation, look at Jesus' explanation. He, he moves straight to the real issue. The real issue is not when can and can't a, a, a husband and wife divorce. The real issue is what's God's purpose in marriage? You wanna really get at the heart of the issue? What is, what's God's good design for marriage? What's it for? But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother 
hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So Jesus gives three reasons. He says, God made them male and female. Not in the beginning of creation, multiple males and multiple females. I, I love what John MacArthur says about it. He, he says, God didn't make Adam and a couple Eves. So if he got bored with one, he could move on to the other. He made them male and female and joined them together. It is an undividable union between the two. And then thirdly, what God has joined together, let not man separate. In other words, the bond of marriage is not a decision that you necessarily make, but a bond that God has joined together. And what God has joined together, man cannot go in and do with whatever he pleases. So the real question is not when and, and when is not divorce permissible, but rather what's God's good design for marriage? And so that's what we're going to look at next week together. Let me close by reading next week's text. It's in Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansing her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There's that language again. And listen to what the Apostle Paul says. This mystery is profound. So God's construct for marriage that he began and instituted in the beginning that had remained a bit of a mystery except for the fact that it was for human flourishing and, and for the continuation of the human race. This mystery is profound. So what is the purpose? What does marriage show forth? What do we delight in in marriage? I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. Marriage is an earthly picture of how Christ loves his bride, the church, and how his church lovingly trusts his leadership and his protection and his provision. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So next week we will look at together 
that text and how that ties into all of this. But for now, would you stand with me? Let's, uh, let's pray and we're going to sing together as we close our time. <clears throat> Lord, I, I do feel this morning as I've left us all hanging a bit. And uh, so I ask that you would graciously, um, Holy Spirit, work within your word as you do. Use your word to conform us and shape us into the image of Christ. Lord, we long to be holy. We long for our lives to please you. We, we long to um, delight in your word. We're reminded that your word says that if we love you, we will keep your commandments. And so while we understand your grace towards us, your mercy towards us, your forgiveness for our past sin, we still long now today to be obedient. And so would you help us not only to be obedient, but to delight in it, Lord, we ask in your name. Amen. Amen. Let's sing.